Thank you for listening to this Table Church Sermon Podcast. We're in a series right now called The Grace Between Us, and it's all about relationships. After all, relationships are what make life worth living. But unfortunately, too many relationships grow apart. And so in this series, we're resolving to let there be grace between us instead of space between us. Be sure to follow us on social media at tablechurchdsm.org and reach out if you need anything at all. Thanks for listening. Well, it's good to see you all here today. Thanks for coming to Table Church and worshiping with us. My name is Phil Wiseman. I'm the lead pastor here. And um, we got a few things coming up I want you to know about. Uh, First of all, we've got a worship night coming up on January 27th. That's a Friday night. Uh, It's going to be here at the Playhouse, but not in this room. It's going to be down in the Black Box Theater where the kids' ministry happens. Uh, It's called the Kate Goldman Theater right downstairs. And this is the third one of these that we've done, and we just love it because it's a chance for us to kind of get intimate with the Lord and with one another in worship. Um, and so it's, it's been a lot of fun, a real simple kind of worship experience, but a powerful one. And so if you'd like to come at 6 o'clock on the 27th, just be sure to mark that in your calendars. Also, um, you heard us mention this last week, but today is Table Talk. Now, Table Talk is an event we do just for newcomers, so if you're new to Table Church, Or if you're just checking us out, or if you want to learn more, this is the event for you. It's going to be today at 5 o'clock. It's going to be at our ministry center, uh, which is over by Smoky Row Coffee. And uh, if you want to come, we will feed you. We'll provide a meal and just come hang out with the staff, learn a little bit more about who we are, where we come from, and what we're about. Hope to see you there. If you'd like to come uh, and you need, like, the address and stuff like that, just uh, write Table Talk on your connection card, and uh, I'll I'll send you an email this afternoon, all right? You know, sometimes, um, well, I'll tell you what, before I get into the sermon, I should probably read the text, huh? If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it with me. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 21. And if you don't have a Bible, just put your hand up, and one of the ushers will bring you one. And we'd be happy for you to keep this copy of the Bible if you don't have your own copy of the Scriptures. But we're in Ephesians chapter 5, and this is one where it really wouldn't hurt to be looking at the text, whether it's on your phone or an actual Bible. Either way. Uh, but the words will be on on the screen above me. Starting in verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by, washing, by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Okay. That's a fun one, isn't it? You know, sometimes we come across a question, and the question makes us realize that we need to define some terms a little bit better. For example, is a hot dog a sandwich? (laughs) 
Well, I suppose it depends on what we mean by sandwich, doesn't it? Here's another one that a friend of mine asked once, and I thought it was intriguing. Are Pop-Tarts ravioli? <laughs> Think about it. I guess we need to define ravioli, don't we? Well, here's another one. What is a marriage? What is a marriage? Have you ever thought of that before? Have you asked yourself, how would you define it? And how do you know? Where do you get that definition from? How do you know when something is a marriage and when something isn't a marriage? Is it something the government decides? Is there a legal document that determines it? Is it something the church says or the Bible? Or is it something we decide for ourselves, whether we're married or not? What is a marriage? What's it for? Does marriage have a purpose? Is that purpose for pleasure, happiness, procreation, companionship? Why exactly do we do it? We start a series today on relationships, and it's called The Grace Between Us. Uh, whereas many relationships grow cold, and there over time becomes more and more space between us. Today we want to ask, how can we insert grace between us? And obviously today we're going to talk about grace in marriage. Um, but in future weeks this month, we're going to talk about grace in parenting. We're going to talk about grace in conflict. And we're going to talk about grace for yourself as well. The passage we read today is one of the primary texts on marriage in the Bible. It also happens to be one that's rather triggering for some people as uh, you may have gathered as I read it. Um, this is often a bit of a problem for preachers because we have to tenderly navigate that tricky word, submit. You know? It'd be a lot easier if that word wasn't in that passage. And this passage has been used, it's been abused, it's, like I said, probably a little triggering for some of us, it's been misused plenty of times. But I want to tell you, uh, I'm far from an expert, but I've spent a little time you know, in this passage, kind of soaking it in, reading and researching it. And look, I, I, I've come to believe that it's actually quite beautiful, quite subversive, um, and quite a magnificent testimony to the kind of love that God has for us as well. But unfortunately, the discussion around this passage often centers simply around the question of who should submit and to whom. We really want to get to the bottom line. Okay, so just, you know, get, tell me who's going to submit. And who are they submitting to? You know, make it easy. Help me. That's where we usually go. And when, we, when, that, when that's our biggest concern with this passage, you know, we start to sound a little bit like Jesus' disciples. They're arguing over who's the greatest. And Jesus says, look, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. In fact, I rather think that Paul may have had that teaching of Jesus in the back of his mind as he wrote Ephesians 5. When, when we're just in a panic to figure out who's submitting and who's not submitting and what does that mean, you know, this, we miss the brilliance of this passage sometimes. So the first thing I want us to do is I want to notice verse 21. The very first verse I read, which I think is actually kind of the introduction to everything that follows. Interestingly, if you check your Bible translation, some translations, you can kind of see the bias a little bit on different translations. Uh, it, there's usually a heading. Sometimes it's right before verse 21. Sometimes it's right after verse 21, separating it from what comes next. And so go ahead and check your Bible sometime and see where it places that heading. But I think that this, this verse is crucial, and it should set the, the tone for how we interpret everything that follows. And here's what it says. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another, it says. This should frame our reading of the entire passage. Paul is already doing, Paul, sorry, he's the one who wrote Ephesians. He's already doing something countercultural by telling everyone to submit to everyone. 
That's just, that's just not, that doesn't make sense for one thing. It's a little bit like in my prayer when Jesus says, he's, you know, the parable of the, the landowner who, you know, pays the guy that worked for one hour the same as the people that worked all day. Like, it just doesn't work, you know? And yet there's these things all over the place in the New Testament where it's just like, this makes no rational sense. How can everyone submit to everyone? That's ridiculous. Somebody's got to be in charge, right? You know, in ancient Rome, that wasn't how things worked back then either. There were very defined gender roles in ancient Rome. Families were always led by a man known in Latin as the paterfamilias, the father of the family. Um, and, you know, back then, when they think of a household, it was a lot bigger than what we think of today. There was grandparents, aunts and uncles. There were servants, you know, children. Like, there, there was a whole operation, the, ho the household often was. Um, and for the ancient people, this complex set of relationships that exists within the household and within culture more broadly, this is the fabric of society. And so everyone is kind of slotted into very specific and clearly defined roles, often based on their gender or position in society. Women and slaves did the domestic chores, uh, and then the paterfamilias, in turn, um, would provide shelter for the rest of the household. And if anybody didn't do their part then the whole system uh, was threatened and everybody would suffer if everybody didn't live up to their particular role. In fact, virtue was largely defined uh, by how well you fulfilled your gender role. And within this culture, these roles were very clear. Men worked in the public sphere, women in the domestic sphere. So the public sphere of the men, that's things like politics. Okay? There weren't any women on the Senate Council in Rome. Uh, things like business, there were actually quite a few female business owners back then, but certainly a male-dominated thing. Things like uh, farming, okay, this was the realm of the man. And then the domestic sphere of the women, this was things like washing the clothes, ironing the clothes, spinning, cooking, child-rearing. For a man to take on a woman's work back then, this was considered very demeaning in ancient Rome. Only, only, the only men who did that kind of thing were slaves, like if, you see, if you see a man doing the women's work, then, well, he must be a slave. And so for a paterfamilias to do the cooking or to iron the clothes or to wash the clothes or to bathe the children, well, this would be to dishonor himself, his household, and his family. Like you, you would never find any of them doing these things. And so with all of that context in mind, let's go back and read Paul's words one more time. Starting in verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Do you catch what Paul's doing right here? Uh, Cynthia Westfall is a New Testament scholar. She's done a lot of wonderful work on this passage. and She points out, you know what Paul's doing? He is describing the husband's role in marriage using the cultural language of women's roles in marriage. He tells husbands to give himself up for his wife by cleansing her. This was traditionally what women did. Women would, uh, the wife would often bathe the children and the husband. Paul says, cleanse your wife. Washing her presenting her without stain or wrinkle. 
This is, of course, the language of doing laundry, of ironing, washing clothes. Paul is using very particular words here, isn't he? And he is telling the men not only to take up traditional female roles in the marriage, but to do it for her, for his wife. Look, Paul didn't have to explain the idea of women submitting to their husbands. Uh, He only needed two verses for that. He gives a whole paragraph to the husbands. And he's doing it very creatively, very carefully, but very provocatively, isn't he? This is a masterfully written passage. This is a masterfully written piece of of rhetoric, if you will. Paul is trying to move the ball down the field, if you will, but he's doing it very carefully, and he's helping them see how Christ has done all those things for you as well. You see, nobody had to be convinced that wives should submit, but if Paul's going to support this command that everyone should submit to everyone, well, then how's he going to deal with the husbands? Who would be thinking that that would be the last thing they were supposed to do? And so he has to get creative, and that's what he's doing. See, the Roman world was an incredibly abusive environment for anybody who wasn't at the top, the most powerful men. Okay, And so women and children and slaves bore the brunt of this, It was expected that men in power would simply have their desires gratified in any way they wanted, whenever they wanted, from whomever they wanted. That's just the way it was. But Christianity comes along in that environment and says, no, no, and and proceeds to tear down that entire power structure. Look, Christian marriage is the most subversive thing in the world. It pointed anyone watching to an entirely new way to be human. It's hard to overstate just how countercultural this would have been. Here's what it all boils down to. Like I'm stealing this phrase from, from John Tyson. He's a preacher in New York, and I think it's the best way to say it. He says, Christian marriage is an act of spirit-filled mutual submission. What's a marriage? It's an act of spirit-filled mutual submission. Listen, being in a marriage is one of the most vulnerable relationships you can ever be a part of. Look, married couples, you, we you see each other, you know, if it's a good marriage, you see each other, in, you know, for who you really are, you know? Like, it's hard to hide anything in a good marriage, in a functioning marriage. It, you're going to see flaws in your temperament, in your, in your spiritual life, uh, your skill set, your emotions, your body. All of these things will be laid bare. It's like a big trust fall. And that's why discussion around this word submit has to be accompanied by the words mutual submission and spirit-filled. I don't think it can happen without the Holy Spirit. I, I, just, I just don't. Marriage asks us to enter into a whole new level of vulnerability and trust. What often happens is we get, into a, we get married and we start putting up boundary markers. You know, my, my level of trust for you goes only so far. In fact, sometimes we even sign documents before the marriage, right, in order to kind of set these boundary markers ahead of time just in case things don't go well. But, but, but God's saying, no, like trust one another completely. There's a vulnerability to it that's very, very difficult for some of us. To enter the kind of vulnerability and selflessness and trust that marriage asks of us, that involves a tremendous amount of grace on my part and on yours. This is why a strong marriage is like a miracle. Um, And I use that word uh, deliberately, a miracle, like an act of God. 
Um, when I do a wedding, I often will tell the couple getting married, I'll say, you know, marriage is evangelism. Like, how's, how's marriage eva is evangelism? Well, marriage says something to the world about who God is. It's a picture of what God is like. Think about it. God himself exists in eternal community in the Trinity. And each member of the Trinity is continually honoring and submitting to the other. This is kind of part of the mystery of who God is. Marriage says something about who God is. As we endlessly forgive, extend forgiveness, as we lay ourselves down for the other, as we extend grace and mercy over and over, as, as we every day wake up and extend grace to our spouse. This is telling the world what God is like. Because God all, does all those same things. And so marriage, marriage is a sign. How should a Christian answer the question, what's a marriage? Marriage is a sign. Before, before it's a source of happiness, before it's a source of pleasure, before it's any of those other things, marriage is a sign of what God is like and what he has done for us. It's a sign of his undying love that will never end as we enter into a covenant just as God covenanted with his people, a covenant that is not to be broken, a covenant that he has stayed true to even when we didn't. That's what marriage is for. It is a sign of who God is and what he has done. This is what Paul is getting at in our passage when he says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He says, look, your marriage reflects Jesus. Do this just as Christ did. And then a little while later, he writes, this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. In other words, look, he's connecting marriage to the work of Christ. And so when people behold a, a, a Christian marriage, a God-centered marriage, what they're seeing is a snapshot of what God has done for humanity. He has laid himself down for them. I think we all know what it's like to get stuck in what I sometimes call the blame vortex. The blame vortex is where each person is justifying their actions and blaming the other person for what's going on. It's like, no, it's your fault you did this first. No, it's your fault you did that first. And it's like this infinite regress, you know, of blame. And you can't get to the bottom of it. I mean, that's lost, you know, in the annals of history. Who knows what actually did, who did the, the whatever first, who started it. But here's the thing. According to the gospel, what matters is not who started it, but who ends it. You know, sometimes we'll have an argument in my house, and I'll, as the parent, I'm like, okay, i got to try to sort through this. I can't. I can't. Like, it's too complicated. It's too messy. But the question that we should be worrying about is not who started this. The question the gospel calls us to worry about is, is who's going to end it? How can I break this cycle with grace? Sometimes conflicts are so deep and so messy and so hurtful, like trying to untangle it is like trying to comb out a mat in my golden doodle's hair. Like just, you just got to get the clippers out, you know? We just got to start over here. The gospel isn't concerned with who starts it, but, but who through love and mercy and grace is going to end it. It's about who's going to be the one to remove the blame between us and insert some grace between us. That's the only way out of the blame vortex. That's where the gospel can help us. The gospel, it reminds us that, you know, I'm pretty messed up myself. To be a Christian is to admit that, you know, I understand I'm a deeply flawed person. 
And look how much I've been forgiven. So maybe I can find it within myself to extend the same kind of grace to you. See, the thing that we will find over time is this. Love is more of a skill than a feeling. We often think of love as a feeling. That's the predominant understanding of it today. But love is actually more of a skill. It's a skill. It's, a, it's an ability that we can develop, that we can practice, that we can improve at over time. Okay, I just started playing chess uh, like a couple months ago. My six-year-old taught me. Um, yeah, Rowan, he learned how to play from his eight-year-old cousin over Thanksgiving. He was immediately hooked, like he's into it. And so he taught me how to play. And so now we play chess. And um, I beat him. I usually beat him. I'll just say that. Uh, he's pretty good. Like, you don't want to be operating at 70% when you play Rowan in chess. I'm just telling you. Um, you know, so I'm getting online, too. Like, on, on, you can play on the Internet with, like, people around the world. I'm playing friends uh, that I know play and stuff like that. I'm just, I'm bad, I'm bad, you know. Like, when you really get people who have been playing for a long time and kind of know what they're doing, it's like, it, I don't care how smart you are, you know. Like, if you don't know what you're doing, you're going to lose. And so I'm just getting whooped all the time, but I'm having fun. I'm learning more about it. It's fascinating. Chess is a whole world. Like, it's a whole thing. There's like, you know, it's like golf. I like golf, too, but I can never golf anymore. You know, I got three kids and a job, and I can't golf, but I can play chess. There's like a Tiger Woods of chess, you know? Like, it's exciting to kind of learn about this stuff. And so I'm getting into it. I'm learning how to do it. I'm really bad, but hopefully getting better. It's a skill. It's a skill, just like love. You can get better at love. Some people are not very good at love. Some people have a hard time overlooking uh, offenses. Some people are easily offended. Some people um, look at a marriage and they think that, that, that looks stifling. I can't, I can't do that. Some people in a marriage suddenly realize this is too stifling, it's smothering me, I need out. They want a life where they can be free to do and to have whatever they want. And as a result, marriage is often seen as somehow limiting their freedom. And they think, well, if I get married, if I stay in this marriage, it will narrow my options in life. And they can't, they can't deal with that thought. I've known many, many marriages that have ended. Now, sometimes it is stifling. Sometimes it is smothering. Sometimes there is a problem here that we need to deal with. But more often than not, in my experience, uh, really people just, they just want to do what they want. They realize once they got in it, it sounded fun at the time. But now that I'm in it, I'm like, oh. Wait, so I can't just go and do and be whatever I want. They want freedom. But you know something? For centuries, Christians have understood that this, this definition of freedom is like my ability to go and do whatever I please whenever I want it. That's actually bondage. It's not freedom. In fact, it's to be mastered by what the Bible calls the flesh. Earlier in Ephesians, Paul describes what our situation apart from Christ is. He says that we are gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following his desires and thoughts. Notice what it says. It says we are following the desires of our flesh. We're not leading them. We are following them. It is a form of bondage to simply live a life free of constraint where I can do whatever I want whenever I want. It may seem like freedom to you, but the Bible says, no, actually, there is something in charge, and it ain't you. Freedom is the ability to love. Freedom is the ability to lay down your own desires your own needs, your own wants, your own preferences for the sake of another. Not because you have to, but because you can, because you're free to do so. You can do what is good and what is right. Some people cannot do it. They are slaves to their flesh. They are in bondage. Love is freedom. 
Christianity has understood from the very beginning that human beings were a lot like goldfish. You know about goldfish? They will eat themselves to death. You give them, keep giving them food, they'll just keep eating, keep eating, keep eating until they die. Like we've developed past goldfish in a lot of ways, but whatever that piece of DNA is, like we're, you know, we will consume ourselves to death. This means that simply living a life that's just free of constraint, that allows me to do what I want, gratify my desires whenever I want it, like that's not freedom. That's just another kind of bondage. We're goldfish. Freedom isn't the ability to do what I want. Freedom is the ability to do what is good. And that's why love is the ultimate form of freedom. It's to be able to say, look, I'm going to lay down my desires and my wants for the sake of another, not because I have to, but because I want to. That's freedom. And this takes practice, and it takes the Holy Spirit. Spirit-filled mutual submission, it's something that's hard, and we have to get better at it over time. You know, uh, I've discovered about myself that I'm rather sensitive to eating noises. Anybody else here that way? Just me. Okay, I'm, I don't know. Eating, loud eating noise, loud eaters. just kind of gets to me a little bit. I'm sorry. And so my family knows this about me, and uh, I remember one time not long ago we were sitting at the table, and everybody kind of knows what Dad's probably thinking right now, you know. I wasn't saying anything. And pretty soon somebody goes, Dad, aren't you going to say something? <laughs> and I'm like, no, I'm not going to say I'm trying to work on this, guys. I'm trying to get better at love. I'm trying to get better at ignoring things that don't matter, the little annoyances, moving past them, and focusing on the bigger picture, which is all of us at this table together. You know, like... Love is a skill, and it takes practice because there's always silly little things about us that bother us, that, you know, whatever, and I'm not going to throw my family, anyone in particular, under the bus about this. It's all of them, all right? Like, (laughs) we need to get better at love, and we can over time with practice. And in some silly way, that was my attempt to get better at love. Marriage is an act of spirit-filled mutual submission, and I know that there's plenty in that phrase That causes us to recoil sometimes. Submission. But as we've seen, it's actually beautiful. It's subversive. It's countercultural. It it can change the world when we do it right. And this is not a message just about marriage. This can be about any relationship that you have. It's how the church should be, in fact. The church ought to demonstrate this to the world. What, it's not about the pastor or the board being in charge and everybody following. It's about us as a community of Christ exhibiting spirit-filled mutual submission to one another. I need you and you, you need me. We need one another in order to grow, in order to flourish. So if you want happier marriages, if you want happier relationships in general, start by laying yourself down for the other inserting grace between you, getting out of the blame vortex, right? It's not about who started it, it's about who ended it. Practicing the skills that make you good at love. Pray for one another. It's hard to hate somebody you pray for a lot. Serve one another. It's hard to stay mad at somebody that you're willingly serving. Let your marriage show the world who Christ is. Your marriage is evangelism. It's speaking a word to the world about who God is and what he's like and what he's done. And so that's the richness and beauty of marriage. Would you pray with me? Well, God, today we know that um, 
there, in this room, are, there's all sorts of people in all sorts of different situations in life. There's single people, there's married people, there's happily married people, unhappily married people, divorced people. Um, Lord, it, we run the gamut. And so uh, that's the danger of focusing on something as narrow as marriage is that it doesn't necessarily apply to everybody, but I hope that today something will. I hope that today something has, that we can understand that really a marriage is, is in a way just indicative of what your relationship with the church is, what our relationship with one another should be, as we just continually love and lay down and sacrifice ourselves for the sake of other people, that they may flourish. And in so doing, Lord, we experience the life that comes from you. And so God, help us to courageously be a church that does that. And Lord, I pray today over any particular marriages that might be hurting. It is so hard and so complicated and so many issues that are so tender and hard to talk about. And so, Lord, let there just be a shot of grace into them. Lord, may that grace wipe away the blame and the hurt. And God, somehow may we tap into that supernatural love and healing and mercy that we all desperately need but so rarely experience from others. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in